up, Sassnacks. It's Chelsea back for another episode of the Sassnack Files. This week, I am discussing the third episode of Men in Kilts, Song and Dance. But before we get into that, I want to take a moment to remind you that you can find the Sassnack Files on all sorts of listening platforms, including iTunes, CastBox, Spotify, Google Podcasts, Amazon Music, iHeartRadio, and many more. Also, if you have not had a chance yet, make sure you head over to follow the Sassnack Files on both Facebook and Instagram to make sure you are up to date on all of the latest and greatest news concerning Outlander seasons seven and eight, as well as Blood of My Blood and anything Diana Gabaldon cooks up. And with all of that out of the way, let's get into my analysis of 103, Song and Dance. is so much ground to cover with this episode, both from Clan Lands and from the episode in general. I actually really love this aspect of Scottish culture. It's one of those things that's so ingrained, I feel like even in the American culture, that you don't necessarily realize it's Scottish roots. This episode opens up with these wide sweeping shots of Scotland and two of the first images that we see are Eileen Donan Castle and Glencoe, two of the most iconic images in Scotland. And my little heart just did a thump thump just skittered a little bit because they're two of the most beautiful sights in the world, I think. If you ever get a chance to go to Scotland, you have to go see both of them. It's just absolutely gorgeous. Had to throw in my little tout for Scotland. But (laughs) the big thing that we start out with is the topic of the bagpipe. It's one of the most famous icons of Scotland and Scottish culture. You hear it everywhere. It's like Sam says, he's like, I feel like I've traveled all over the world and no matter where I am, whether I'm in Los Angeles or Edinburgh, I hear bagpipes. And I got to thinking about this and I said, you know, that is so true because up until I was a teenager, I didn't even realize that a bagpipe was something that was unique to Scottish culture because if you listen to my podcast last week, I talked about the Indianapolis 500 and every year when I was young, my dad used to take me and my brother up to the track to go to qualifying and there is a pipe band that plays at the Indianapolis Speedway called the Gordon Pipers. And they just march around all day long around this ginormous racing venue and they just play their bagpipes and their drums. And so I was used to hearing that sound and I didn't realize it was something that was unique to the Scottish culture. As far as bagpipes are concerned, they were banned after the Battle of Culloden and it's something that was only used as part of military setting from the time of Culloden onward. And so there's this one story that they told in this episode that really, really struck me. And I didn't remember hearing this story the first time that I watched it, which was kind of crazy. So pipers were used as part of the Scottish regiments in the British Armed Forces. And 
And in World War II, a piper stormed the beaches of Normandy and marched up and down the beach for like 30 minutes, just playing his little heart out. And the Germans actually stopped shooting at him because they just couldn't believe that somebody could be so insane as to march up and down the beaches under heavy fire playing the bagpipes. (laughs) So I guess if anything, that kind of shows the level of respect that they had. Like it takes balls to do that. That's freaking crazy. I can't remember. I didn't remember that story. And they also talked to Ian McGilvery, who is one of the youngest clan chiefs in history. And they meet him at Dune Castle, which some of you may recognize from Outlander. It is Castle Leak. I actually got to go to Dune Castle. It was one of those things where I thought that yet again, I wasn't going to be able to see it. And lo and behold, I just happened to mention to my tour guide, I was like, hey, I know if we cross over this river. There's a bridge that we cross. And if we look down, we can see Dune Castle. If you could just give me a heads up so that I could like get a picture out the side of the van, that would be great. Like I wasn't asking him to do me any favors or anything really. And he said, well, actually, we're not going back that way, but I'll do you one better. He said, we have a little bit of time. So let's just stop by Dune Castle. We won't be able to go in because it's closed for renovations. But yeah, we'll just stop. So we got to stop and I got to take pictures and it was one of those like dream fulfilling moments. And that just kind of goes to show the level of hospitality the Scottish people have. Like they're so accommodating. And I really love that about visiting there. Anyway, back to bagpipes. So Ian McGilvery is a highly talented bagpiper. You've probably seen him if you follow any sort of Scottish accounts on Instagram or Facebook. There are videos of him playing the bagpipes in several different famous, beautiful Scottish locations. He's extremely talented. So that was a great way, I think, to kick off this episode, especially since he's so passionate about Scottish culture, playing music, and how the bagpipes and Scottish music reflect that culture globally. So you could really tell just by the way that he was talking with Sam and Graham that he views himself as an ambassador for Scotland in much the same way that Sam and Graham do. And I thought that was so cool. I thought it was ironic because Sam and Graham are talking about at the beginning of this episode, how they have literally no song and dance talent. Like they're not musical people. Sam has never done a musical, has no desire to do a musical. And Graham is not a very good singer. I think he has a pretty good sense of rhythm. And I think that Sam sells himself short on having a sense of rhythm like I don't have a sense of rhythm, right? Like my hips do not disconnect from my torso whenever I try to dance. It looks super awkward. And just watching Sam and Graham dance, I'm like, okay, y'all don't know what it means to not have a sense of rhythm. (laughs) And I can sing. Like that's the thing. I like to sing. I love to sing. Can't dance to save my life. And I've done local musical theater. I absolutely love it. But you know, compared to some of the other people that are on stage with me, I just look like like a cardboard cutout. My body just doesn't move that way. So yeah, I gotta call Sam and Graham out on that. I can't sing. I can't dance. Yeah, that's bullshit. (laughs) Be 
S, Mr. McTavish and Mr. Hewan. Anyway, <laughs> we get to Gillibrige McMillan, and he talks a little bit about Gaelic in Scotland and the Gaelic culture. He sings a little song, does a little ditty. He says he has a song for every occasion, which I love. I love how descriptive the Gaelic language is. I think that's something that Outlander, the books particularly, gives you a great appreciation for, how descriptive and immersive the language is. And it can seem kind of jarring to the ear, especially when you listen to music, because it doesn't seem like it flows very well. But I think it's one of those things that once you understand what it's saying, you're like, oh, yeah, that's really beautiful, you know? So I want to take this moment to kind of talk a little bit about the Gallic language, because as many of you know, it was banned after Culloden, much like the bagpipes. We're seeing a pattern here with things that were banned after Culloden. But in the Western Isles where Gillibrige grew up, 90% of the population learned Gaelic as their first language. So English is the second language to them. You may recognize the name Gillibrige McMillan. He's Gwilin the Bard off of Outlander. And if you've listened to my recent podcast, you'll know that Gillibrige has also been hired on as the Gaelic consultant for season seven of Outlander, which is really cool. And since Gaelic is his first language, I think he has a very good grasp on how you would say things. Because one thing that I did learn when I was in Scotland a couple of times ago, I was talking to, again, one of my tour guides, and he said that he's been learning Gaelic and it always bothered him how Jamie calls Claire Monian Don because in certain parts of Scotland, Monian is what somebody would call a daughter, not necessarily lass. So that was interesting, like that connotation. I'll be interested to see what other things out of the Outlander universe are kind of, they don't necessarily have the same connotation as you would think just reading it off of Google Translate, so to speak. One of the things that we learn from Gillibrige is that he grew up going to other people's houses and he's quoted as saying, we now think of a Kaylee as a dance, but the Gallic word means to go visit. And when you're visiting, you tell a story, sing a song. And if the gathering's going well at three in the morning, you might have a dance in the kitchen. So a Kaylee is really at its essence a gathering of people. It's not necessarily that same dance visual that we get at the end of this episode with the Kaylee that they have. Even though it looks so totally fun, and even though I can't dance at all, like I said, it really makes you tempted to go and have a good time. Like it really just looks like everybody's really enjoying themselves. We'll talk a little bit about a story that we learn in Clanlands. If you are a fan of Game of Thrones, or if you have visited Scotland, or if you know anything of Scottish culture, you have probably heard about the Massacre of Glencoe. The Massacre of Glencoe actually inspired George R.R. Martin's The Red Wedding. So Sam tells a story about how when he was younger, he would go to the pub, the Cask and Barrel, with his friends, and there would always be an old man in the corner that would just sing songs. And one of the most popular requests that he would get is The Massacre of Glencoe, which it's a song that sounds very folksy and it could have easily been hundreds of years old. But in reality, it was written by John McClane in the 1960s. But regardless of all of that, it's still an extremely vital piece of Scottish culture. I think it's probably one of the most famous songs that came out of Scotland. And I'm going to read you some of the lyrics. 
Oh, cruel is the snow that sweeps Glencoe and covers the grave of Donald. And cruel was the foe that raped Glencoe and murdered the house of MacDonald. They came in a blizzard. We offered them heat, a roof for their heads, dry shoes for their feet. We wined them and dined them. They ate of our meat and they slept in the house of MacDonald. They came from Fort William with murder in mind. The Campbell had orders King William had signed. Put all to the sword, these words underlined, and leave none alive, called MacDonald. They came in the night when the men were asleep. This band of Argyles through snow soft and deep. Like murdering foxes amongst helpless sheep, they slaughtered the house of MacDonald. Some died in their beds at the hand of the foe. Some fled in the night and were lost in the snow. Some lived to accuse him who struck the first blow, but gone was the house of MacDonald. It's an extremely evocative poem slash lyrics. It's really quite interesting. And so when we look at the whole story, we start to understand a little bit of the context of this. So the McDonald's of Glencoe were extremely famous for raiding their neighbor's cattle and generally not being nice people. So this is a partial explanation for the massacre. They didn't have a good relationship with the Campbells. The Duke of Argyle, who was known as the Earl of Argyle until 1701 when he was made a duke, was the chief of the Campbells. And the Argyles were one of the most powerful families in Scotland. And they they knew how to play politics and amass land. Like that was their talent in life. They knew how to accrue power. The McDonald's did not have a good relationship with the Campbells, to say the least. In January of 1692, 128 of Argyle's men found themselves billeted with the McDonald's for a span of 12 days. And something that you need to know about Scotland is the idea of Highland hospitality. No matter how you feel about anyone, if they find themselves in dire straits or if they need accommodation, you open your door, you say, come on in. Hostilities cease because being a kind person is more important. That's the idea of Highland hospitality. It's instilling trust, if you will. And so for 12 days, Argyle's men were with the McDonald's in Glencoe, and all was well. And then on the evening of the 12th of February, 1692, the leader of the soldiers that were billeted with the McDonald's, Robert Cameron, is given a piece of paper. It's a letter. And in the letter, it says, put all to the sword under 70. They are to do this at 5 a.m. on the dot while everyone is still asleep and they're not to breathe a word of this to anybody. Even the commanding officers are not to tell their men until the very last moment. This kind of violence is an extreme violation of that Highland hospitality code. And for a lot of people to this day, that is still the primary issue that they take with the massacre of Glencoe. It's not that so many people were killed. It's not the violence of it. Like, this is Scotland. The violence of clan feuds and warfare is instilled. Like, the blood stains the ground. So that's not the issue. It's the issue that that trust of that contract of Highland hospitality was so callously and brutally broken. Even though the officers 
were aware and they weren't allowed to tell their men. Some of them attempted to warn people despite their orders. It's also said that the Glenyans Piper, Hugh McKenzie, played Women of the Glen as a coded warning to the McDonald's of imminent danger. Now, this is all hearsay. There's nothing to say that he actually did this. But if this is true, then that speaks volumes about their integrity because the soldiers were given a choice. They could either participate in this massacre or they could hang themselves. And that was put on paper, like this was their choice. Because of all of this confusion and outright refusal on the part of some of the soldiers that were being billeted with the McDonald's, there was an extreme delay in carrying out the orders. And a lot of the McDonald's were able to escape, but there was so much snow on the ground. It was just drifts and drifts of snow. And you can imagine all of these people fleeing into the mountains of Glencoe with nothing but the clothes on their backs, just running for their lives. In in total, 38 men were killed because of this massacre. So what led to the massacre? That's probably the biggest question that everybody has. Like, yeah, you can give me the facts all you want, but what actually happened? In 1689... It was right after one of the Jacobite Risings, and all the clan leaders were offered a pardon for their part in the Rising if they signed an oath of allegiance to King William of Orange. If they didn't swear the oath, then they were made to be an example, which is exactly what happened to the McDonald's. Sir Colin Campbell sent word to John Dalrymple, who was known as Lord Stair, this Word that was sent said that the chief of the Glencoe McDonald's intended to swear his allegiance, but was delayed by the snow on his way to the wrong place. So not only was he late in arriving to sign his oath of allegiance, but he also went to the wrong place. Colin Campbell, who owned the estate that the chief of the Glencoe McDonald's arrived at to sign this oath of allegiance, sent word to John Dalrymple, who was at the place where they were actually supposed to be signing the oath, and said, hey, don't freak out. The McDonald is on his way. Well, John Dalrymple was a bit of a bastard, and he hated Highlanders. So naturally, he would jump at the chance to slaughter a few. Make an example. They didn't show up, so they all die in their sleep. It's kind of fucked up, if you ask me, but that's kind of what happened. And so to this day, there are hotels and inns in Glencoe and in the surrounding area that says... No hawkers or Campbells. And hawkers are like solicitors, like door-to-door salespeople. So yeah, no hawkers or Campbells. And that is a legit thing. Like if you have the last name Campbell, you're not welcome. It doesn't matter if you grew up in Scotland and have any idea about what this clan is. If you have the last name Campbell, find somewhere else to sleep because you won't be staying there. Those hotels are the King's House Hotel and the Clock Egg Inn. So if you're a Campbell and you're thinking about staying in one of those places, look elsewhere. I wonder if it says it on their website. Somebody should look. Anyway, kind of keeping with the Jacobite connection here, there are a lot of famous Scottish tunes 
that are thought to have Jacobite connections. So obviously, Skyboat Song is the most popular one when we're talking about Jacobite connections in music. Understandably so, because it is literally about Bonnie Prince Charlie's escape from Benbecula in the Outer Hebrides to Sky, over the sea to Sky. But some of the more understated ones are O Come All Ye Faithful, which experts from Durham University are claiming is a coded Jacobite ode, which is interesting. I wonder what the code is there. I mean, yeah, oh, come all ye faithful. If you're talking about uh, calling loyal Jacobites to the cause, I guess. But that's very interesting because you think of Oh Come All Ye Faithful as like a Christmas song. So, hmm, that one gave me pause. The one that's listed that absolutely tugs in my heart is The Bonnie Banks of Loch Lomond. I love this song. It's one of my favorite Scottish ballads. And when I heard the actual story behind The Bonnie Banks of Loch Lomond, I teared up a little bit. So basically what it was, was there were two brothers that were captured after the Jacobite Rising in 45, and they were taken prisoner. The British came to them and said, okay, so here's the deal. One of you lives and one of you dies. And whichever one of you lives gets to walk free and go home. But you guys have to decide which one of you lives and which one of you dies. And the older brother is saying, you know what? I'll do it. I will make the sacrifice because I've lived my life. I have children to carry on my name. I have a wife that loves me. You are just getting your start in life and you haven't even had a chance to live yet. And the younger brother saying, that's exactly why I should go because I don't have any connections. I don't have anybody that I'm responsible for. Nobody's going to care if I'm gone. And so they go back and forth. And then late in the night, the younger brother falls asleep. And when he wakes up in the morning, his older brother is gone. And there's a letter left in his place that is supposedly the lyrics of this chorus. You take the high road and I'll take the low road and I'll be in Scotland before you. It goes back to the Scottish legend that talks about the high road and the low road, the high road being the one on earth, the low road being through the underworld, so to speak, to go back to Scotland, to your happy place, to heaven on earth. So you take the high road and I'll take the low road and I'll be in Scotland before you. It's a very beautiful song and it's very touching, especially when you know the story behind it. And then, of course, we've got the classic example of songs being used in Scottish culture, which is walking songs. Walking wool is a process of shrinking the fiber and felting it after it comes off of the loom to create this famous weatherproof quality of plaid and wool. So whenever they, in the olden days, would walk wool, they would have to wet it most of the time with urine and then they would like stretch it and shove it back together and stretch it out and shove it back together to kind of pull the fibers in all the different directions to get them to shrink into that waterproof knit that we know of today so famously. So while they were in the process of walking, the songs would be slower while the wool was wet and heavy. And then as they continued to walk it and the wool dried out, the songs would speed up and the rhythm would get faster. So I thought that that was an interesting way to pass the time and kind of also keep a rhythmic push and pull on that wool. 
a lot of walking songs were passed down orally from generation to generation, and a lot of them were in Gaelic. Most of them are in Gaelic. After Culloden, when the Gaelic language was banned, it would make sense that a lot of that oral tradition was lost. A lot of those walking songs we no longer know because that knowledge base isn't there anymore. Kind of sad, but also kind of interesting to know that that technique was used. And we see it in Outlander. I That's one thing that I like about Outlander is that we really do get a bird's eye view of the Scottish culture. And yes, it's like Graham said a couple of episodes ago in Men in Kilts. We get a very sterilized version History is a lot more complex, and I understand that, but I also do feel like it does give you a better appreciation than probably the basis of your knowledge that you already had. With all of that being said, we'll get back into Men in Kilts because that covers a lot of the info that I had on Clanlands. So watching Sam and Graham sword dance... It was absolutely hilarious. And this is one of those things that I totally forgot about whenever I was first watching this episode. And then I rewatched it tonight and I was like, oh my God. (laughs) And to be honest, if this is literally all the overview slash training that they got on this dance, I don't blame them a bit for how clumsy they were. And to be quite honest, they were way more nimble than I would have been because like I said, I'm not coordinated. I can't dance to save my life. So I definitely would have kicked the sword. I definitely would have died in battle. And you know, there's probably something to that myth. So the myth is if you can do the whole sword dance without touching the swords, you will survive and win the battle. If you touch one of the swords during your dance, then you will be injured in the battle. And if you kick the sword, you would die. So I got to thinking about the logic of that. And to be honest, there's probably something to it because when you're in hand-to-hand combat, your ability to have good hand-eye coordination and your nimble nature and the way that you can be quick and light on your feet has a lot to do with your success as a swordsman. So the people that are lighter on their feet and better dancers and more coordinated probably were more likely to come out of a battle without injury. So I thought, yeah, that probably does have a basis. In fact, like that probably did happen quite a bit because if you've got somebody that's a klutz and is constantly tripping and kicking the swords whenever they do their dance, they're probably going to trip over their own feet in a battle with somebody shooting a gun in their face and like stabbing a bayonet in their general direction. So this dance that Sam and Graham supposedly learn how to do, she says that it's something that four, five, and six-year-olds would be competing in. And I'm like, okay, but how many classes did the four, five, and six-year-olds have to take before they learned how to do this as well as they do in competition? Because I took gymnastics when I was younger. And at one point, I was actually pretty good. Like I could do backflips and backbends and cartwheels and round-offs and all that jazz. But if you ask me to do that after one 10 to 15 minute lesson, there's no way I could have at six years old. So take it with a grain of salt. I understand that Sam and Graham are like, okay, yeah, I can't do this. And a six year old can like, wow, that makes me look really bad. And when you say it out loud, yeah, it does. But you got to look at like the literal context of the comment as well. And I love how when they are dancing and Graham like kicks the sword, Sam goes, oh, you're dead. And then Sam kicks the sword a little bit later and Graham goes, ha ha, wounded. (laughs) 
<laughs> and like I said a million times before, I know that this banter is probably played up a bit for television, but it doesn't mean it's not absolutely hilarious. I think the only time that I was halfway turned off by it in this episode was when they were doing the pipe band thing and Graham was playing the bass drum and Sam was doing his little motion with the stick, whatever it's called. That did feel a little played out and cliche and I won't 100% admit it, but also this is one of the shows where you kind of just have to abandon your sense of propriety. Like this isn't a sophisticated show. This is a fun, educational, lighthearted TV show. And that's exactly what they're trying to do. They're trying to make you laugh. And so when you can look at it from that perspective, I think you can appreciate it a lot more. Finishing off the episode is the Kaylee. And you know, by now you'll know I can't dance, but man, it looks so freaking fun. And they look like they're having such a good time dancing back and forth. And I love the way the camera angles play on their reactions and the rhythm of the music with the cutting of the footage. I was so impressed by the fiddle player. I could not take my eyes off of him. I thought that was so cool. Whenever they were interviewing the Kaylee dancer, I can't remember what his name is, but he was talking about how one of the Kaylee dances was developed. And it was by some Scots that were being held as prisoners of war during World War II in Germany. I can't remember what it was called, but they did it partially to keep warm during the cold German winters. But part of the formation at the end of this dance is into a St. Andrew's cross, which is the X-shaped cross that we see on the Scottish flag. So a little bit of a bird to the man, as it were, as they're, they're dancing to keep warm at a German POW camp. One thing that I felt was entirely authentic and sort of fun to learn. Graham was telling a story about a Kaylee that he attended on New Year's Eve or Hogmanay. It was on the Isle of Mull, which is an absolutely beautiful island. And again, if you ever have the chance to go, I highly recommend it. It was actually one of my favorite parts of this last trip that we did to Scotland. I actually liked it more than Skye, which if you ask my mother is like sacrilege because she loved the Isle of Skye. And not to say that the Isle of Skye is not completely gorgeous and jaw-dropping because it is, but there's something about Mull. The Isle of Mull is not a place that you hear about on a regular basis, but it's so untouched. Like it has such a small population compared to a lot of these places that you visit when you go to Scotland that you get back to nature with it. I mean, and Scotland in general is just gorgeous scenery all the way around and it's not like it's heavily inhabited at all, but Mull, you really get the feeling that people People are living in small communities and relatively living the way that they would have lived not so long ago. So it's really a beautiful place to go. Lots of trails and pretty drives. And if you drive all the way across Mall, so we left Oban, took the ferry over to Mull, drove all the way across Mull, and went over to Iona. And we spent the day on Iona, which was the birthplace of Christianity in Europe. So that was really cool. That is where St. Oren is buried, which you may recognize from the first episode of Outlander, where he was martyred and buried alive. So yes, Mull is beautiful, but Graham was telling a story about how he attended a Kaylee there on New Year's Eve, and he said at 7 p.m. at night, 
night. So five hours to go until midnight. People were six deep at the bar and drinking whiskey straight from the bottle. Sam just doesn't even look surprised. He's like just nodding his head like, yep, that totally sounds feasible. (laughs) Welcome to Scotland, ladies and gentlemen. They do this Kaylee dance called the Dashing White Sergeant. And it actually looks like one of the easier dances that you could do. It's, you know, hold hands in a circle and take eight steps to the right, eight steps to the left. And then the middle person turns to their right and dances with the person to their right. And then they all join hands and take three steps forward, stomp their feet three times, take three steps back, clap their hands three times. Um, So it looks very rhythmic and probably something at, that I could probably wrap my head around. I'm not entirely comfortable with that kind of thing, but if I watched it enough, I could probably do it. So note to self, if I ever participate in a Kaylee, request the dashing white sergeant dance. <laughs> Alrighty, guys, that about wraps up my thoughts on the third episode of Men in Kilt's Song and Dance. I did not have a witty one-liner of the week, surprisingly enough, because I feel like they have lots of banter, but this week's, like, van banter was much more about them learning about each other's early careers and things like that. I did have a Sam and Graham shenanigan of the week, which was when they were talking about all of Graham's different voices and accents that he does. And he's talking in a American Southern accent. And he says, probably my favorite is Little Red. He goes on to talk about in this voice how he's like, I don't know where we're going in Scotchland, but so far there's been a lot of skirts. I wear men's pants. (laughs) It just makes him feel uncomfortable. And the thing about it is, is it's so freaking true. I could 100% see a man from like the deep south, like Texas or Arkansas going to Scotland and being like, what in the holy hell am I looking at right now? No, I am not wearing a kilt and don't you even get near me with one. I could see my grandfather doing that actually and he's not even from the deep south. So there we have it guys. Another week of men and kilts in the bag. As far as Outlander news, as I'm recording this, today is Valentine's Day of 2023. And as a surprise, stars dropped the opening credits for season seven, which was like poof. So Shanae O'Connor is singing the theme song this season, and it's a very interesting representation of the Skyboat song. I'm not 100% sure that I'm on board with it, but I think it's something that I'm going to have to sit with and marinate. I'm planning on doing a breakdown of the season seven opening credits in the near future, so I hope you'll join me for that. Also, on March 11th at 2 p.m., I'll be doing my next edition of Droughtlander Book Club over the Broken Brooch by Catherine Lowry Logan. That is the fifth book in the Celtic Brooch time travel romance saga. So if you are looking for something to fill Droughtlander and you like a little bit of time travel romance and you like to read, I highly recommend the Celtic Brooch series. You can get it on Audible or on Amazon. Either is a great choice. I have them all on Audible and I have them all on hard copy. I hope you guys will join me for everything we've got coming up for Droughtlander. And it doesn't sound like we have too much longer until Droughtlander is over, my friends. Stay tuned. I will keep you updated with all the new Outlander news as I get it. Make sure to join me next week for the fourth edition of 
of my Men in Kilts series on witchcraft and superstition. Can't wait to check it out with you. Until then, you guys stay safe out there and I will chat at you later. Bye. Bye.